This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hello and welcome to The Great Indoors, the podcast which reveals everything you ever needed to know about interiors and explains how to make it all really work for you in your home. I'm Sophie Robinson. And I'm Kate Watson-Smythe. Now, before we reveal where we are today and whose house we're about to take a tour of, a word from our lovely sponsors, Geberit, who are Europe's leading bathroom manufacturers and experts at helping you plan the perfect bathroom retreat. Now, when it comes to planning a bathroom, one of the elements that often gets forgotten is the storage. You need so much more than you think. I always say, make a list of what you think you need and double it. Yep, it all needs a home, from toilet rolls to toiletries, towels to toothbrushes. It's all got to go somewhere because nothing kills off the look of a stylish bathroom than oodles of plastic bottles nestled precariously around the rim of the bath or loo rolls stacked up high on the windowsill. There isn't a one-size-fits-all solution to this problem because everyone's bathroom is a different, often awkward shape. That's so true. And our sponsors, Geberit, have done a lot of research into how we use our bathrooms on a daily basis and then use this data to create clever range of storage solutions which can be mixed and matched to suit your specific needs. For example, the Renova plan is a suite of modular furniture with a winning combination of sizes and configurations from tall to compact, from thin to slim, with integrated mirrors and space-saving drawers and sleek handleless doors. Should I be worried about how excited I get about storage? Nah, it's a middle-aged thing. You're in a safe space here, it's fine. But for more sexy storage solutions and to explore all the different ranges, visit geberit.co.uk. So, listeners, I can now reveal that we're standing in this beautiful kitchen. It's my kind of blue. I just had to put that in there. In this really gorgeous muse house in West London. I have to admit, I've always fancied myself in a muse house. Yeah, me too. (laughs) But this house belongs to the prestigious interior designer and director of Oliver Law's Designers, the one and only Guy Oliver. In the last 10 years, Guy has been behind the redesign of some of our most famous hotels, including Claridge's and the Connaught in London, and the Shelbourne in Dublin. He says the thing that excites him most, though, is the work he does as creative director of the Turquoise Mountain Foundation, working with artisans in Kabul in Afghanistan to restore the many beautiful old adobe houses which have been destroyed by the war. He says... Taste is experience, and I absorb so much through my life, travel, and study. So, Guy, thanks so much for having us. Well, thank you for coming. Nice to meet you both. Well, I'm already loving it. I've just parked outside. You've got a cobbled street. I mean, you are just living the London dream, aren't you? This is such a lovely, quiet little oasis. It's a bit 101 Dalmatians, isn't it? In that first (laughs) film, they live in a muse house, and that's always made me fantasise about a muse house. The funny thing about a muse is there are 101 Dalmatians that come up and down here to to do their business every night. Is that a very West London kind of dog? Oh, I get it, I'm getting it. So how long have you been based here? Well, so it's almost 20 years. We moved so much when I was a kid. I moved every 18 months with my parents. And so, and that's probably why I'm a designer, because they were constantly redoing houses, moving, changing. And so the fact that I could stay put for a period of time is amazing for me. So I'm very lucky to be here and happy. It's, it's really interesting, that moving house. 
We've interviewed so many designers for the podcast and also over the years. And I spoke to Sophie Ashby of Studio Ashby mm-hmm. sometime last year. And she said that she'd had a childhood moving around a lot. And she'd never met a successful interior designer who hadn't had that kind of peripatetic childhood, parents who moved around living mm-hmm. in different places. And it clearly comes out in this need to create stability in homes for yourself, but also for other people. So. Yeah, definitely for sure. I mean, when I was, I think my earliest sort of awareness of being interested in design and decoration was when I was three. My parents had gone out and I was left at home with my grandmother who wasn't averse to the old glass of whiskey. And I had poster paint and I started lining out these panelled cupboards in the kitchen. I was painting red lines around the kitchen wow. very methodically. And this, and then my parents came back and there were these red sort of lines around every kitchen door in the in the house. And then my mother tried to clean it off and it went pink, the whole thing. Well, <laughs> so, sounds quite stylish. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but also you then actually, before you became a designer, you sort of carried on that transitory lifestyle because you were in the Navy. Yeah. I mean, that's quite a leap from Navy to interior design, or maybe it's not. I joined the Navy when, well, I signed up when I was 16 and I went to the Naval College when I was 17 and I was the youngest cadet in the in the college. And the, the whole thing was a total accident. The Navy were lost. They turned up at my school by mistake and I was one of the five kids that was forced to go and watch this presentation. And then being prone to flattery, this admiral said to me, um, you'd make a perfect Naval officer. And I said, Good idea. <laughs> so so I ended up joining the Navy six months later, and that was my launching in my career of design. And so did you love it? Did you hate it? Um, it was a weird move for me. In in some ways, it was a way of creating a, you know, a society, a community, and a home. So you have all these people around you all the time. You live with them, you work with them, you're fighting, you know, you're with them all the time. So it creates this community. So from that point of view, it felt safe because it was like this, you know, good place to be. I don't know how they didn't know I was gay. At the time, it was a court-martial and a dishonourable discharge, although I was not court-martialed. But they used to put me in charge of organising all the parties and and events when we were So they knew. They did know. He's a creative. (laughs) And I never forget, we came back from the Falkland Islands, not from the Falklands War, but we were on patrol in the South Atlantic. And we had to go to the West Indies. And there's this thing called West Indies Guardship, where you sort of sail around all these beautiful islands in the Caribbean. And I was asked to set up this party on the flight deck. And being me, it had to be better than everyone else. And I had sort of, I took six guys ashore. We brought back palm trees. I built a waterfall with rocks and ponds. And we had fish, real fish in the whole thing. And so the captain was like, they were totally wowed by this part. So after that, I was always in charge of events and parties on board. So, you know, I don't know what that said about my fighting abilities. (laughs) (laughs) So in a way then, when you you left the Navy, design felt like a natural yeah in a way my mother had an antiques business so she was always nothing was stationary at home everything changed so you know aunt may would die and leave us a sort of table or something my mother would be like, mm, don't really like that i'll sell it and buy another one yeah. and there would be this sort of you know objects became decoration and i got to understand you know finding the right thing bringing things together creating space and you know and and, and you're editing things and constantly so i don't get attached to objects i love them and i love creating space and i love working with interiors but it's not so i don't feel materialistic about the stuff i could you know i could pick up and then start again somewhere else and, and do you think that's really helped you as you're in your career and your ability to design spaces yeah i mean i always say the carpenter's door is always broken because 
you know, I exercise all my materialism vicariously through the client. So I'm constantly, <laughs> you know, when I get home, I kind of want to shut the door on that in a way. But I do, you know, I obviously, you can't help loving space and being, or, you know, things around you. Are, my house is very eclectic because it's bits of things I've collected on my travels. And there's no overarching design here, but it sort of reflects my personality, I suppose. So. I think it's really interesting because some interior designers use their home as a showcase. Mm their brand if you like yeah. and again you know we visited a few interior designers who's absolutely done that and had it yeah. photographed is your home somewhere that's just a bit more of a treat away from a, a that bit. i think i you know i mean some interior designers use other interior designers to do their homes and i've done that in the past before what you've employed an interior designer to do your home no i've been employed by an interior designer you know, I, really you know what, i would love to have an interior designer come do my house it's a bit of a fancy of mine i would i think it'd be so much fun because i think they'd put like a whole fresh spin on it it'd be very interesting to know what another professional yeah. eye would make of of your style yeah. And, and, and part of being a designer, as you know, is is a bit being a therapist as well, because you're you're there to listen, and then things don't make sense, and they might, you know, they're employing you because you're a consultant, but you're also a therapist, and you're you're a color therapist or a design therapist. And so, I recently had an old friend who came back into my life twenty years later, and I've been walking them through the plan of this beautiful house by the sea. It's an amazing old rope factory. And working through that process with them about getting them to be confident about where the rooms were, you know, we can't put that there because that used to be the, the drawing room. And I said, but it'd make a great bedroom for you because it's got a view of the river. <laughs> and, um, so those things and getting people to be confident that they're not going to make a mistake. In a muse house, you talk yeah. about layout. I'm guessing muses houses are famously small. There's not a lot of room for layout no. now. Can we can we go and have a look? Yeah, of so course, we come absolutely. out of this kitchen, which is one of Sophie's favourites, mm, deep blue. dark cobalt blue. Is that a navy blue? So this blue is I mean actually... a blue from the navy. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually called British Navy, and it was from John Oliver, who you may or may not remember. It doesn't exist anymore, I don't think, that paint range, but someone's picked them up. But he had these fantastic range of like 40 colours and British Navy was one of them. He also had something called Kinky Pink and there was Gold as Green and oh, wow. there was all these weird colours, but they were of an age. They were actually from the 60s. There's one called Autumn Sunshine, which I was in love with for years. It's beautiful yellow and things. And he had amazing taste. And so I loved this blue, of course. I was in the Navy and I got used to blue. But um, he, yeah, that's that was where it came from. Who's your go-to paint brand now? Who would you specify? Very as? good question. Um, often we work with painters who mix colours. So, I mean, the old idea of oil glazes, which of course is less useful now. You've got to do water-based acrylics and things. But Rosa Jericho do wonderful distempers and it gives you that sort of worn feeling on the wall when you're, you rub against the paint. And that's wonderful for a country house. Mylands, which people often don't think of, but they have a fantastic colour range. Paper and Paint Library, Baron Ball. But I think the difference now, when I started, you didn't have all these colours that were sort of pre-mixed. And so people are able to go and buy a look because they've seen something in the National Trust House or whatever it is, and they can actually go and buy the paint. So is it a big part of your schemes, picking picking the right colour tones and palettes for things? Yeah, and, and sometimes you have to mix the colour. I was friendly with someone called Dudley Poplack, who died a long time ago, but he um, he used to come into a meeting with a painter and he'd say, he'd pick up an, a leaf and he said, I wanted the colour of this autumn leaf. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and that was always rather charming because he would see a colour that he knew was right and then he got the, the painter to mix the glaze and put it on the wall and that was there's an element of that which is charming and artisanal and you know yeah. wonderful so I'm heading out of the kitchen yeah. into the hall and I'm guessing that must be the garage yeah, as this is a garage. muse house so, so 
So I'm very lucky that there is actually a double garage there. Wow, so that must what... be almost as big as the house. <laughs> <laughs> double the size of the kitchen. Anyway, but what's great about it is when I was... I had guests, I could do dinners for up to 36 people sitting down. So I would rent three tables, 36 chairs, put hang fabric around the room, swag greenery, hat, borrow paintings from our dealer friends, wow. dress the room out, put a carpet down and have a dinner party. It used to take me three days to do it. And I'd have everyone from the old to the young to, you know, to 15 year olds to 90 year olds and mix the whole thing. And that was always an amazing thing to do. And I used to have a wonderful friend who lived across the road who was a chef who's unfortunately moved. Oh, <laughs> and, um, how irritating after. <laughs> there he, and yeah. he would he would make, I would say to him, can you make me this huge pate or could you make, you know, prepare a beef wellington, for example, which would normally, you know, for 36 people would normally be prohibitive, but he would sort of beaver away and make it and then come across. And that was fun and wonderful. And but Are I you hoping gone. we can get back to that? Yeah, I think that's, it's times. nice. We've got to get on the invite list. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to a party in a garage in West London. That's not the kind of garage party that, that yes. we necessarily might think of, but I'm up for this now. I'm a yeah. bit older. It's not yeah. your kind of garage party, yes. isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's, you know, I love... And I enjoy entertaining people when I've got the time. And it's, you know, the opportunities are few and far between now because, you know, obviously with what's been going on in the world. But, yeah. but yeah, I'm ha totally happy to have as many people as I can. Or who I, want to be I just love that that nods back to your time in the Navy when you were like <laughs> grabbing, <laughs> yeah, getting all the coconuts in the palm trees and making rockeries on top of the ship. And then here you're still doing it in your yeah, garage. It still happens here. Brilliant. Yeah. What's in there now? You've got so, any well, treasure a, store? There's actually a basement under there as well, which is weird. So oh the, my gosh, there's how a... could you cope with so much storage? I would just <laughs> fill it with stuff. Well, you don't know that he hasn't. <laughs> he has, there you go. <laughs> but... so it happens to us all. <laughs> I don't think it's very glamorous in them and the cars in there at the moment recharging. But they, um, I used to be a hoarder and say, have this for a rainy day. I still have a few objects around. Like I've got this beautiful hand painted sink that I found a 19th century blue and white sink. And I think I'd love to have that in my plant room. If, you know, like if I had a flower room or something, I was like, when am I ever going to do that? And, yeah. um, but I still bought it because it was a beautiful thing. Yeah. And so I'll probably put that in a client's project one day or. You know, oh, lucky things, client. So. Yeah. <laughs> lucky client. I feel a blue and white bathroom coming on. <laughs> <laughs> I want a flower room, darling. Oh, no, of course you are. <laughs> Let's go upstairs okay. and it Sorry. looks, so it's a sort of exposed brick wall, but uh, there's a fabulous curve on it. Yeah, so it feels a bit boaty, this. I always thought this felt a bit like being in a boat because of the way the space is quite, you know, compact, but you're in this staircase, which feels to me like I'm in a, on board a, a boat or a yacht or something. And so. did you make this curve or was this this part of the original Muse house it was, design? It was part of that. So the house was built in the 80s, but it was on the site of a 19th century Building. I was so, going to say an 80s muse house doesn't yeah, quite sort doesn't of cut it right so it no. had a it used to have a weird fireplace halfway up the wall on the left so I sort of made it I was a bit more conventional I put in another chimney and sort of reset the room so the living room is uh here this is where I I watch tv read books and lie on the sofa and I hadn't noticed the tv at all in here there's so much else to like that and everybody complains about the telly but God, that's quite a titchy telly. That's so cool. typical of an interior designer, isn't it? You haven't got the huge widescreen. In fact, like, I always I always take the mickey out of you for having a small telly, but that's smaller that's than yours. Small, yeah, no, it's smaller than my telly. I think it's quite big. Nobody's getting a bigger one. It's obviously not the thing. I, I watch films on TV, but it's not my life. Mostly it's all stuff that's sort of I've found on my travels or bits of furniture that I designed, like this thing here, which uh, was a 
drawer that Ooh, that's like a, super clever. to describe to listeners it's it's a bit like jenga if jenga <laughs> was a chest of drawers <laughs> okay so it, there's two of them there and i did it for a house and garden show a while back but it was for cut storing cutlery so they stagger they have these sort of secret drawers on either side of them so cool and they're also they're basically for a statue of plinth as well, well so. to, to come back on the jenga vision <laughs> i'm saying it's more sculptural than that oh, and, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> Shall I go next? <laughs> but also I'm seeing that there is a real celebration of craftsmanship. Yeah. I mean, the dovetail joining and all the yeah. little, you know, it's They're all, it's, it's all, very indulgent, isn't yeah. it? The ebony wood and the pale mm-hmm. wood. And then I guess the things in here. So I always, my grandfather, who was a very poor man, he used to say he didn't believe in shares or, you know, in, he said always buy things you can touch and see. So, oh, nice. so I buy things that I like. So there's some pictures. There's a nice, that's a drawing by Eric Kennington. And when my grandmother died, she left each of us 2,000 pounds. And I bought the painting and said, she gave it to me. So that was the story for me. But it was just like this little, you know, something that I appealed to me aesthetically. And I, you know, it was nice to have that relationship. The map is where I'm from. So that's Aberdeen show, which is where I grew up, although I don't have... Oh, a, you've lost that accent. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> that got it's washed out of me in the Navy. It <laughs> well, they couldn't understand what, you <laughs> what we were saying. So, yeah, it's more of a dialect in Aberdeen. They say, oh, I fit like Divi Kinfit, I'm um, so, so good. Could you different. translate that for That us? means, hello, hello, how are you doing? Do you know what I'm saying to you? Oh, right, fabulous. That's <laughs> really Brilliant. How important do you think it is for people doing their own houses, albeit on a slightly smaller scale, to have a historic reference or a geographical reference? Or do you believe you can do what you want if you like it? It will be authentic. I mean, somebody might have a thing for Star Wars characters or, you know, I mean, to take (laughs) it into a different cultural direction. But if that's something that they celebrate and they love, then that's completely valid. And, you know, people have got different experiences, different ideas. I mean, the nice thing about having a story is that it creates something that other people when they visit the house they can sort of come into it and believe it you know and when I was doing the interior design masters filming oh yes just drop that here <laughs> oh yes, yes. He's, a, he's a dropper of names isn't he oh my mate on the Hercules and now I'm doing the filming we will dear listeners fill you in so Guy has just come hot off the set of the next series of interior design masters which Sophie's involved in as well it's fine I'll just be the non-entity in the room don't mind me but that will be the next series which should be out sometime next year and Guy was invited to judge the hotel episode if you remember, they're all based around shops, hotels, rooms, different themes. And because Guy did the Connaught and Claridge's and is a hotel expert, that was his area of expertise. And we have no spoilers to share with you. But as you were as saying... I was saying, so I was asked to look at the hotel show and I can't reveal the name of any of the designers. But one of the designers in the hotel show totally understood the brief and created his own story. And everyone else ended up believing the story. Mm. So what was rather nice was... You know, there was this fictitious character, which was what the room was designed around, given the overarching brief. And everybody believed it when they saw the room installed. And it was probably the most successful of all nine rooms. And he created a story and he got other people to believe it. And that was the magic of the space. So I was going in there and I thought, oh, yeah, this does look like this person's room. And it does feel like that. And that was part of the joy of the interior. 
and believing something that was actually a fiction, but it felt real. I love that as a designer, you've been able to do that with a historic building. And we can do that ourselves yeah, in our smaller really houses. Story. You can create a story. and and I love the way as well that we feel good in places that tell yeah. us a story. You know that yeah. thing when you walk into a space and you think, oh, this is a nice place mm. to be. You might not logically break right. it down. It just feels nice. And it quite often is those spaces that have layers of different things of history and and you feel like it's coherent and it falls together that's the trick it's creating what the french say a mise-en-scene or an atmosphere or you know set and you're for me curating that story was part of the design brief and actually it's a more economical brief because you're recycling upcycling working mm. with things and layering things over a period of time and people when they're in those spaces they don't realize why they like it or they feel comfortable they're not experts in 19th century interiors they don't you know but they walk in and they feel the lights right or the there's a picture at the right angle to look at when they're sitting down or whatever it is and it feels good design unfortunately sometimes is unnoticeable because mm. it feels like it's always been there well i'm going to compliment you guys because i'm loving your home already it's beautiful it's a lovely warm autumnal palette isn't it there's lots of gold colors and deep russet reds and then these kind of cool china blues it's also not a room that's all matching which we've spoken about before yeah. so there's vintage furniture there's antique furniture there's a very comfortable sofa an armchair that's a different color so it's a sort of pale blue damask sofa i'm uh, counting five armchairs <laughs> you love an well, armchair back to them yes <laughs> A sort of more carved, striped armchair. It's very, it's layered eclectic stuff that's come over time. It's the last thing I ever thought about, but there are things that I love that I've bought here. And I know the artists who've done the paintings. You know, there's two interior watercolours by a man there called Alexander Cresswell, who was my watercolour tutor. And it's a, it, they're scenes from the Frick um, Museum in New York, which I love when I lived in New York. I always used to go there because I felt this uplifting, happy place. And, and then there are things like that. That terrible picture of the Thermopylae with this boat, which used to be in my my nursery when I was a kid, in my bedroom when I, I shared a room with my little brother. And that was above my bed in a horrible white plastic frame from Boots the Chemist, apparently. Yeah. And um, I sort of reframed it and put it in here. But it was things that are memory. And then there are things that are quite good paintings, like the portrait of the merchant over there. And I have a, have a leaning to things a bit more exotic, I suppose. So some of those things are because of my experience traveling in the Middle East and the Far East and, and the lack of cabinets and all those elements. And Oh, those lack of cabinets are absolutely <laughs> diva. Where did you find those? I mean, they're I actually, super special. I bought them from a furniture company that was going out of business and they literally had all this stuff in their warehouse and they said, <gasps> and, I, and I bought three. There's two there and there's a red one in the in the other room and I was very lucky it wasn't inexpensive but they were very reasonable for, for what, they, what are. they are yeah so, they look super special yeah. so we're on also to continue the description we're on I sort of suppose uh, a mezzanine level aren't we so yeah, there's a, a there's a sort of railing where you can see over mm -hmm. the hall double height hall and now I see we've got the burgundy color in here and I see there's a burgundy door over there so right, can so we go and that, that looks like a study yeah yeah so <laughs> This is a sort of, I guess this is my kind of dressing oh, space and study. And oh, this room. Yes. <laughs> gorgeous. Um, oh, it's so gorgeous. So we've got, so this is like a dressing room. So yeah. you've got a single bed in here. Is this, is yeah, that so a... So sometimes if I'm working late and I don't want to disturb anyone, I 
come I come down here and I can work till three in the morning and lie down and oh, do Oh, do you often thing. do that? Are you a night owl? A bit. I mean, it's sort of, well, I mean, I'm sort of a 24-hour owl because oh, <laughs> um, the, Na- the Navy, you know, we had four-hour patterns of sleep. And so since then, I, I sleep for four hours at night. So that stayed with you. Yeah. That's so interesting. And how many years ago since you came 20 up? years. And so plus. you've never broken the habit? No. And I, so I'll catnap and I go to the office and I will catnap at lunchtime and I'll catnap at six o'clock and then, so 20 when minutes you... recharge and that's, that's it. So. And then four hours at night? Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. Well, no wonder he's got so much on. I mean, he's going to sleep. It's fine. The rest of us need about a good 10 hours. No wonder we don't do anything. <laughs> Well, I always, I mean, it's funny because people say, how do you have time to do charitable work and philanthropy work and all that? Number one, I don't have kids. I have lots of lovely nieces, nephews, godchildren, friends' children. I love kids, but as long as you can give them back. (laughs) I couldn't, I I really, my hat goes off to friends who are parents and they sort of have to deal with these screaming children running around. And I just would, you know, my creative brain would not be able to cope. And I, I realized quite early on that I'm a bit selfish about that. So my way of giving back is working on voluntary projects and philanthropy. And they say, oh, do you, how do you have time? I say, well, I don't have kids. So these are my kids, these projects. And, and you're following your passion, I guess. Your business, as successful though it is, yeah. it still remains ultimately your passion. Yeah, Having so, that connection to yeah. creativity and transforming <laughs> fabulous spaces. <laughs> What's been one of your most favourite projects? Gosh, I think... Milani, which was this 1937 yacht. So that was a weird manifestation too. Everyone's going to think I'm a wag job because, but, uh, <laughs> but I, I literally, I was working with a friend who was a therapist, a therapist who became a friend. I don't know if that's professional or not. And she said, what projects haven't you done? What would you like to do? And I said, well, I've never done a vintage yacht. I'd love to do a vintage yacht. And she said, well, write down how that would feel. And I thought, this is crazy. So I wrote down, you know, it would bring together my love of the sea or my interest in solving spatial problems, design, you know, all the heritage elements. I kid you not, two weeks later, I got this phone call from a yacht broker who I'd met 10 years before. And they called up and said, hello, guy. He said, you love vintage yachts, don't you? And I was like, yes. He said, can you be in Falmouth next week? (laughs) And I ended up meeting this client and doing a project which lasted three years. And it won the award for the best super yacht. And it was this amazing project, and she's she was finished in 2015, and it was an, that was an amazing, amazing wow. thing. Wow! What's involved <laughs> in designing and renovating a vintage yacht? What were the challenges? Well, it was it was almost like creating that mise en scène, the set, because the original yacht was really Spartan. It was a lot of those yachts at the time were paired with racing yachts, so the owners would sit on their very large motor yachts watching the racing yacht. So this is a 60 meter yacht. And it had been quite Spartan and monastic, but it was built in 1937. So what I did was like, the, the owner didn't want to live like a monk, you know, on, <laughs> on his yacht. He wanted a bit more luxury looks, you know. So I created a story around the period. And, you know, this yacht was built in 1937. We're having our coronation. There's the world speed record on the Mallard. It's like, and we're completely oblivious to the fact that Mussolini and Stalin and Hitler yeah. are all doing stuff in Europe. And, <laughs> And we're like, oh, let's have a party. We're all fine. We've got an empire. And, um, but but um, anyway, so this was, this, it was trying to capture the confidence of that period and create a space. Uh, the brief was lovely because the owner said, make it look like it was been in continuous ownership since it was built. Oh, and that dreamy. was a dream. And he also called it a loose association of rust held together with air when he bought it because it was falling apart. 
and then we created this amazing, amazing yacht. And it's it's much loved, and I would recommend chartering her if you ever get oh, the money. Oh, yes, but... well, you know, when I have my 50th birthday, I think I'll just do that. I'm just looking for a pen and paper <laughs> to uh, do some manifests. <laughs> <laughs> so to talk about ships, you said spatial planning is an yeah. interest of yours, and we are in your second bedroom, which yeah. is a study and a spare room, and it's got a single bed in it. It's yeah. a small room. So yeah. what what is it you like? Is that sort of more yeah. than colour? Is it the sort of problem-solving? It's problem-solving, but it also people find that comfortable as well. So what was very interesting was the client who did the yacht, his favourite space was a little study on board. You know, it wasn't the grand saloon. It wasn't the, the big dining room. It wasn't, the you know, his master suite. It was the little study because it was intimate and personal and had all the elements around. The problem a lot of us have tends to be the default position is, I wish I had more space or it's too small. And I'm interested in that you have chosen to live in this house, which is quite small, mm. and that this is a gorgeous room. Mm. It's also quite small. Have you got any sort of tips or help that people can have if they feel their rooms are too small and they can't move or they can't knock down walls. Are there ways to embrace it and make it work? Well, Marry. first first of all, I'm going to say you can tell you're in the Navy because this is so well <laughs> yes. organised. Very tidy. Just putting that in there. Tip number one, tidiness. <laughs> After that. Um, for me, I like having a problem to solve, you know, so, so working out how space works. I was very lucky the Navy trained me how to deal with that and literally... I, I know I'm lucky that somebody comes in and irons for me, but I still taught her how to do this. Oh, is, gosh, what? Um, so she oh, irons everything yes. into squares. <laughs> so we were taught this thing when I joined the Navy at the age of 16, 17. We were told to iron all our T-shirts into little squares and put them in the drawer in a way where you could find them, of course. And it seems obvious now, but most people don't think like that. I can pack my suitcase in... Five minutes because I keep a wash bag ready. Plus, I just pull out three T-shirts, three shirts, three ties, whatever it is, and put them in the bag and it's done. So for me, that's about efficiency of thought and not wasting time on stuff that isn't really worthy of your time. My T-shirt drawer, honestly, I'm just looking, I'm just going back to the memory of me getting ready before I came here this morning and I've just got stuff spilling out of my chest of drawers. Yeah, my drawers don't look like that. Joy. That is so, yeah. So it's it's being, if you've got a small space, you've got to be organised you've got to keep things compact yeah, exactly. and you can't have loads of stuff spilling out because it edit. just chokes the room. Oh, an edit. Edit. Yes, that would be number. <laughs> Which stuff. is hard, right, when you love yeah. stuff. I mean, I am, I can tell that you're somebody who loves Things. Yeah, I get attached to memories of things. So for me, it's not about the value of an object, although some things have got intrinsic value or some things are, you know, some of the pictures of known artists or whatever, but I feel an affection towards certain things. That bust there I made when I was a student, and if you lift the hat of it, that was my first sculpture experience. And my, one of He's my... very handsome, very if handsome. a little knobbly. <laughs> a little knobbly, <laughs> but it was my first experience. But then I had a disastrous relationship with, with someone who threw it out of the window and the nose is chipped. And so it's sort of... <laughs> that is telling the, a story right there, isn't it? Yeah. And then these, these little pictures I bought when I was in Dartmouth, they were in a, a flea market and... Uh, the frame, I chose the paint colour and did the frame and everything. Oh, that's and, a really good hack, isn't it? If you've got yeah. a junk shop frame, yeah. even if it's quite a cheap one, yeah. paint it a better colour. And the frame was like, wow, how did you think of that? And I'm like, well, because the blue's in the hull of the yacht. I'm also interested, though, because you're obviously somebody who knows a lot about antiques. Mm. And I'm sure there's some seriously, you know, I'm not an antique specialist, right. but I'm looking around going, there's some seriously nice gear in here. <laughs> 
But then you're not afraid to then mix it with stuff you found, you know, your no. boots poster from your kid's bedroom, you know, uh, things you picked up from the flea market. But you can't tell. You can. Everyone can pull everything off. Are you, are, is it you called know. winging it? Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. You know, you need to wing it. And Style it out. Yeah. Style it out. Yeah. Yeah. Style out your lino floors, people, because you can do it. Yeah. And, lo and love your story and love yourself. I mean, that yeah. took me a long time growing up in Scotland, for goodness sake. You know, that's you're looked on as you know shameful if you if you love yourself or if you're in. Yeah, you know, it's a so. really different. It can be a really different culture, can't it? The mm. feeling of I mean, we sort of touched on this at the beginning. The feeling like it's excessive and yeah. it's indulgent having yes. beautiful things in a beautiful home and enjoying yourself. Yeah. So, <laughs> are you saying that the career you've fallen into has almost been? Has that been your little rebellion from? I guess your a background bit, a bit, and it's also you know I mean I'd never really thought about it like that. It's a good question, but my I went to a bear pit of a, I would say something else, but I don't think I'm allowed to. But I went to this bear pit of a comprehensive school in Scotland and. The Navy saved me from that and they gave me an education and they taught me how to be confident about myself. And suddenly I was thrown in front of heads of state or, you know, admirals or whatever it was. And you you have to sink or swim. And they will, you know, one of the part of the training is they ask you to give a two minute talk about yourself when you go to the college. And at the end, it's a one hour presentation and your entire class group will laugh and point at you. And when you're 16 and a half, you're like, you know, and I was up there and like stuttering and hadn't been to any of those grand schools that the others had been to. By the time I'd finished, I'd learned to be confident about doing a presentation because I realized if I can't sell myself and if I can't make a success of me from where I came from, no one else is going to help me. So that's a good lesson for everyone to learn, I think. So, so true. Can we go and see your bedroom? <laughs> <laughs> So, come upstairs. I like the mirrored banisters as well to yeah. just throw the light around and make the space feel bigger. That's yeah, a that's a, a little trick. trick. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, again, it's very compact. It actually reminds you of some of the spaces that Michael did in the QE2, but this semicircular switchback stair is a very, you know, sort of compact use of the space. But the mirror makes the space feel double volume and it feels like you can see both sides of the stairs, although obviously the reflection is different to the where you're going. Yeah, it doubles the width, doesn't it? He's yeah. ex-Navy, you can see if anybody's creeping up. <laughs> I think that's the real reason. It's not interior design stuff, it's Navy stuff. Yeah. So talk, I guess talking through some of this stuff here, there's a house there from that I worked on in, in, in America, which was the oldest house inhabited by the same family wow. in America. It's built in 1720. It's in Charleston. And it actually has a ballroom and they have Gainsborough portraits in the ballroom. Of course it has a ballroom. I love it. How does one design a ballroom? Um, well, <laughs> does it take a lot of swaggage, I imagine? Yeah, it's a thing. There's <laughs> Some a big chandeliers. There, there of when I left, we left Hong Kong in 1997, which is the, I love that the troops' kilt was being blown up and true to form, Scotsmen don't wear They really underwear. don't wear anything <laughs> under their kilts, do and they? Then, and then that's a funny portrait. He looks a bit like my dad. I bought him in the flea market in Moscow and inevitably I worked in Moscow about 15 years ago for a very important family who were sort of in charge at the time. And um, <laughs> How many years ago? A little while ago. Anyway, so he what said was 15, quite, I'm doing some Maybe, maybe a bit yeah. more. So when I was in the Navy, we used to spy on... Russian ships, and I ended up in the Kremlin discussing <laughs> the interiors of the wow, presidential. Surreal. There's a presidential building called Number One Building, which is his. So the Kremlin's had a mini city, and in the middle there's this building called Number One Building, which is the president's house. 
And so having spied on Russian ships in the Navy... You were literally in the inner chambers. I was, in, I was suddenly <laughs> in the Kremlin. Yeah. And I was talking about the curtains. And so, wow. Pinch me, <laughs> so, wow. so that, to me, I guess, was the weirdest moment in my career. That's super surreal. So come into the, to my bedroom. We're at the top of the house. We yeah. come up through the stairs and there's basically two, two rooms, bedrooms and one two on bathrooms. either side. Yeah. You've got two bathrooms yeah. up here. So there's two bedrooms, two bathrooms. You've crammed a lot in. Yeah. So it's nice and cool up here, not just because the windows are open, but because you've got a fan going on too. <laughs> I was working on a project in India. What was fascinating was this Maharaja from the 20s had a paraffin-driven fan. It wasn't an electric fan. It was a paraffin motor. And... The thing was generating heat and then also creating, which struck me as is like having a chocolate teapot. Why, <laughs> why would you do that? But anyway, it was fascinating that there was this thing in the middle of India in the house. But this, again, has got elements of, you know, me from different times in my life. That, that little bronze painted duck was something that I was given by my parents when I was seven in the little bookcase there. Um, I bought the bookcase when I was a student and it was in my room as a student. What I'm loving about the story of your home is what you're showing us and what we're seeing is the journey of your life through the objects you've collected. Right. And, and I'm really hearing how it's uh, it's triggering really lovely memories of mm -hmm. the people who are in your life or experiences you've had, but it's everywhere, Guy, isn't it? On every corner, on every surface. Because the, the decor is almost quite spartan. Yeah. The walls are a sort of warm cream colour, mm. There's touches of navy blue cushions on the bed and white linen. That's quite a navy bed, isn't yeah. it? With a checked blanket and regimented <laughs> cushions. But but you're right. So you would come in here and it feels quite sort of Spartan. Yeah. And yet every single thing you could point to mm -hmm. tells a story. And that's got to be the secret to, yeah. to fantastic I mean, interior lights, design. I, des I designed those lights for an exhibition. That table I bought for 20 quid in a flea market and had it repolished. That's interesting to say repolished. Because mm -hmm. I grab stuff from flea markets. I've yeah. never had anything. Repolish, <laughs> and now I'm like, that's, that's what you should be doing. Like that, yeah, I have a fantastic polisher that I work with. It's actually now I'm working with his son. So his father is called Paco, and the son is called Joe. And I won't say his surname because it'll all go off and oh, get. I love that. <laughs> I always suddenly think he's mine. He's mine. How many listeners do no, we have? He's going to be like, no, no, no work for me anymore. <laughs> uh, but no, but I, it's lovely those relationships with people over the years. Yeah, and it elevates it, doesn't it? I mean, I'm just looking. At the, you can see that looks so beautiful. It's brought out the richness of the wood. It's got mm. a lovely soft sheen. And yeah, ordinarily, if that had just been picked up at a car boot sale, it looks dull yeah. and and flat and... And I guess that's why the person sold it for 20 quid. Yes. So, that's a really good but, tip. Oh, should we ask Guy what your thoughts are on painted furniture? Because there's no painted <laughs> furniture in here anywhere. We, we, we got into a lot of trouble last time we asked that question, so I'm I'm not sure <laughs> we should... Know it. Oh, okay, know it. No, I think there's painted furniture and painted furniture. I mean, there's amazing 18th century Gustavian Swedish furniture, which looks incredible, and it's all rubbed back, and they sell for the most ridiculous amounts of money. And it's painted furniture. Yeah, and right? it's painted yeah. furniture, and it's like mad. You know, someone will pay a hundred thousand pounds for a Gustavian table in from that's authenticated. You know, and what's the difference between that and a farmhouse table that you've painted and rubbed mm. back yourself? I think it has its place. It's more of a country thing for me. There's elements of it you can use in in town interiors, but. I like the idea of having color that shows through. So there's a finish called Decapé, which I love, or Ceroosing. And so that's when you have a dark stain and then you effectively lime over it, but it's got a rich, dark base. And then you you sort of rub the limed mixture into the furniture and it goes and pulls in the cracks and it gives it a nice sort of powdery 
Ooh, effect over so the lovely. polish, and that's a really lovely thing to do. Um, I want to go into that room. You want to go in there? You don't want to go in there. No, go in there. Go, 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 there's go, go, a go. wall of mirrors. Yes, there's yeah. a beautiful little. Is it an Afghan rug yes, or a Persian rug? And a and lovely then, um, emerald green armchair. And yeah. I'm drawn. Okay, you're so going go, to say it's yeah, a mess. Go, it is He's, a mess, but go in I just there. would say I'd love to see Guy's version of a mess. Guy's got his hand over his face, going, "Oh God, if you must go in there, it looks fine to me." Okay, so go in there and have a look. So on the Left is a temple. So I was working in Tokyo, um, and um, I was working in Tokyo and going there for three years. And there was a flea market in a place called Harajuku, and I saw this, and I didn't think how the heck I was going to get it home on the plane. Uh, <laughs> but it came in my hand luggage. Did you? And oh, they, was it packed down? Yeah. So the client, member of his team, was honourable champion gift wrapping in for Tokyo. Oh, right. Who knew? Yes, because they yeah. have them in they Tokyo, have, they don't say, they? They actually... <laughs> they have gift wrapping champions. Yeah. So he, he cut a whole load of polystyrene sheets and made this box around it. And I was carrying it because it's very light. It's balsa construction, so it's a very light thing. And I was carrying it and I went to check in at British Airways and they said, the woman looked at me and she goes, what's that? And I said, I said, that's my temple. I have to travel with it. <laughs> <laughs> and God bless them. They put it in the front. There was no one in first class and they put it on a seat in first class and it flew back from Narita to London and it's here. Let's just give listeners an idea. This is like well over a meter and it dominates this room it looks i mean you don't really need anything else in here guy because it just looks fabulous it's the temple room but i'm, I'm just the spare trying room. to track back the thought process of like yes this little trinket i'll take back with me so i i liked it obviously as an object because again it's got that orientalist sort of thing going on and the shape of the roof and all those things but I intend one day, it should actually have the sort of white paper in between the frames on the doors and all those things you see on a Japanese temple. So one day, if I get the time, I will work on it. Oh, it's splendid. It's absolutely <laughs> so over the top and eccentric. I love it. And there's something about, isn't there, the sort of grand old British families who live in houses that do have these really eclectic things that have been passed down and grown over a lifetime. Yeah. And I feel like... You've compacted that into your very rich lifetime, yeah. you know. I, I, but it has that feel. It has that feel of a of a grand old house that just has accumulated. That shrank a bit in the wash. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I've been really lucky. In my 20s, I collected people. And when I had my 30th birthday, I had 500 people there from every walk of life and everything. By the time it was my 40th birthday, I had 30 people there. Oh, so you've done, you done some editing. Yeah. Not edit, yeah. <laughs> you know, you meet people. I just gathered because it was so exciting meeting people. You know, people who've got interesting lives and who've done things and are doing amazing things. And, and you know, they've, they've got passion about what they do. And that could be an artisan woodcarver or a furniture maker or it could be somebody who fixes the stone on St. Paul's Cathedral or whatever it is. And you gather people who've got a joy of what they do, a joy of life. Well, thank you so much, Scott. I can't tell you what an absolute pleasure and a joy it's been to meet you and for you to so generously take time out of your very busy schedule to meet us. Thanks. Well, thank you for coming. It's really been really a pleasure to meet you. Yeah, it's been wonderful to just hear so many stories and actually feel inspired for your own place that it's not just about the colour of the paint and the furniture. It's about the stories that it brings to your home as well. So really inspirational. Thank you so much. Thank you. For pictures of this fascinating treasure trove of a house, do check out our blogs. Mine is madaboutthehouse.com and hers is sophierobinson.co.uk. There will also be pics on Instagram where I'm Sophie Robinson Interiors and she's mad about the house. And you should and can follow Guy himself 
at GuyOliver underscore. Thanks also to our brilliant sponsors, Geberit, and to our producer, Sarah Cudden of Feast Collective. And a huge thank you to you for listening. And we'll see you in the great indoors. 